How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the word. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed so grateful that we have you to come to, that you are always present. You are always ready to answer our prayers, even though you know what our requests are from eternity past. You don't ever learn anything new. Yet you desire for us to come before you, present our petitions, our requests, our intercessions. And Father, we know that you hear us and that you answer our prayers. Father, we just pray for those in the congregation that we know of that are struggling with various uh, various challenges, especially those who are facing medical challenges. We have a number of people facing those that are uh, potentially life-threatening and those who are just facing ongoing serious uh, maladies. And, Father, we just pray for them and their endurance and focus upon you and also for those who are their uh, caregivers, pray for their sustenance and strength. Father, we pray that we might be an encouragement to them uh, because it is often uh, just people just think that they're they're alone uh, dealing with these problems on a day-to-day basis, and uh, we can really be an encouragement to them. Father, we thank you for your word this evening, the opportunity to study through uh, the this final section of chapter 5 in Acts and be challenged by what we learn here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What so happened as I was walking from the men's prayer meeting into the congregation this evening that I was asked a question. Somebody said, would you please explain why we celebrate Valentine's Day? And it's right here. So ask and you shall receive. It seems that in the early church, in the towards the end of the uh, third century, uh, in the year uh, approximately 270, there was a, <clears throat> a priest, a monk, by the name of Valentine, and he lived in a time under the uh, Emperor Claudius II, and this time period in, in the early church from the middle to late part of the 3rd century, 250, 260, up until the uh, Edict of Toleration, which came by uh, from um, uh, uh, Constantine in 315, was a time when there was the last last surge of persecution, almost an empire-wide persecution. People have a lot of different ideas about the persecution in the Roman Empire because of Hollywood, but most persecution was sporadic against Christians, was sporadic, and it wasn't empire-wide. It, most of them were local. There were only two or three times when you had an official empire-wide persecution, and about the last wave of that occurred towards the end of the uh, uh, third century. And so this was uh, one of those times. And this was uh, <clears throat> this happened because the, um, the emperor had um, uh, passed an edict that uh, in, because he wanted to recruit more soldiers for his army, that he was uh, prohibiting marriage of young men and uh, young soldiers, because he didn't want. He looked at marriage as an opportunity to distract the young men from military service, and so there was this priest named Valentine who ignored the order and secretly married young couples in the underground church. Because of that and those activities, he was uh, arrested, and he was, according to legend. He was beheaded on February the 14th along the uh, Flaminian Way outside of Rome. Also, according to legend, while he became, uh, while he was in prison, 
he became uh, friends with the daughter of the jailer, and they exchanged uh, uh, writings, and he wrote uh, some uh, romantic poetry to her, which is allegedly where we get the idea of Valentine cards. I don't know how true that is. But that, that's the, that's the legend and that his last note arrived on the morning of his death and allegedly, according to legend now, ended with, uh, the closing your Valentine. So that is, uh, that's, that's the legend. Now there's some things about this that, that we know are true. There was a, a priest named Valentine and he did conduct underground weddings. Uh, he seems to have had, uh, it's very possible he had some sort of um, relationship, platonic relationship with his jailer's daughter, and he probably was put to death because of his faith in Christ. But beyond that, we know little, and anything else that you hear is has nothing to do with it, and it wasn't until uh, a couple of centuries later that February the 14th was named in his honor with the beginnings of what we now call the Roman Catholic Church, which really didn't begin, uh, depending on how, what you look for as the, as the, uh, uh, as, as the key element. Uh, organizationally, it doesn't come into effect until about 600 with Gregory the First who doesn't like to be called Pope, doesn't think that the Bishop of Rome should be called Pope, but he acts like the Pope. He raises an army because the Roman Empire has been defeated and the barbarians are at the gate. So he acts and and assumes the power that uh, increases the uh, power of the Bishop of Rome. Uh, others would locate it in terms of their uh, theology when it becomes fully accepted and formalized later around the ninth or 10th century. I tend to be one to put it earlier around 600 and as a beginning of full-blown, uh, as a beginning of what we would call Roman Catholicism as opposed to true ecumenical Christianity. All ecumenical really means is, is, is universal. And that was a true ecumenical Christianity in that everybody believed the same thing. There were no uh, divisions or distinctions with among churches, no denominations. In fact, there's not really an alternative denomination, alternative to, to the Christian church until Luther makes his separation with the Protestant Reformation. But up until that point... Uh, there's really only one uh, one church. Christ, the Christian church and the Roman Catholic church are, are one and the same. The term Catholic is a term that simply means universal. Uh, it, to distinguish between the Catholic church, which is prior to 600, and the Roman Catholic church is to emphasize that distinction between uh, the, the church that looks to Rome as the ultimate authority um, on earth. So those are just some random uh, points there, but that tells you a little bit about where the idea of Valentine's Day came from and how it became embellished and became a legend over the years. What I've seen over the last, um, uh, I think, 20 years, it, I don't remember Valentine's Day being as as fully blown up as it is today. I think that's a product of Hallmark and the greeting card industry. <clears throat> and the chocolate industry and a few other industries like that, and the flower industry, but um, uh, these things, uh, uh, they're, they're, that, that gives you at least a little information about uh, its core beginning. All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We are all living in a battle. Some of us are weary. Some of us are fatigued. Some of us are not yet fatigued or weary, and some are full of energy in the battle. It just depends on what your battle is and how it is, how you are facing it. Uh, I think fatigue and weariness often becomes as much a test in the battle as the battle, uh, as the battle itself. And we have to learn to love the battle. And when I say that, first part is learning something. We have to learn to love the battle. You don't just love the battle. Uh, it's not just about loving the battle for the battle's sake. 
Uh, we're learning to love the battle because of what the end game is and what the what comes with with victory. But we are in a battle. And Ephesians six twelve and thirteen talks about this: for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That is the time when the battle is particularly intense for you. And having done all to stand. The battle sometimes is overt. Sometimes the battle is covert. Sometimes we are attacked specifically because we are standing up for the Christian faith and standing up for the truth. And sometimes the battle is more covert, and it's just because we're living in a fallen world and Satan's fallen system, and therefore we're going to come under opposition, and we're going to face adversity and testing just because we're in the devil's world. Jesus addresses the overt aspect in John 15, 18 through 21. He said, if the world hates you, and that's the not just the cosmic system, but that is... I think emphasizes the people within the cosmic system that are sold out to the cosmic system. And because you are a Christian, whether, and I think there are times when people, whether they realize we're Christian or not, there's just something about what we stand for that makes us a target. And Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. That's why I often say some, for some people the, road, the path to happiness because they're not committed to the Christian life. They may be believers, but they're really not committed to the Christian life. The road to happiness for them is to get in bed with the world system. Then they'll have real happiness. It won't last. We sometimes need to let some people experience the, the full benefits of their bad decision and just absolutely see their life fall apart before they'll understand what they've what they've lost and what they truly need. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is a universal principle that because we are out of the world, the world system will hate us. Even if you're a carnal believer, you're a believer and the world's going to hate you at some point. You cannot escape the battle. You cannot run behind enemy lines and put on the enemy's uniform uh, and uh, think that you won't be discovered at some point. There's no escape. We're living in a spiritual battle, and we're facing spiritual enemies that are not the overt enemies that we think in terms of people or specific circumstances. But we're living in the devil's world. In verse 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, quote, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word... They will also keep yours also. In other words, if you're committed to the world system, I mean, if they're committed to the world system and you are following me, there is going to be persecution. It may be covert, it may be passive, or it may be more overt and active. What we're studying in Acts 5 is overt and active. What you experience may be more covert. Verse 21, Jesus said, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And that's a critical statement for his name's sake. We must understand that the issue in the battle is the glory of God. The issue in the battle is not my comfort. The issue in the battle is not getting accomplished in this life what I think I want to accomplish in this life. The issue in this battle is not that things go well for me. The issue in the battle in this battle is that God is glorified and that the mission that Jesus Christ has given us is fulfilled. Then in John 16:33, as he wraps up the upper room discourse, Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. That's the only place that there's peace. See, this connects us to what I'm teaching on Romans 5 on Thursday night, as well as to uh, what we're seeing and demonstrated by the apostles here in Acts chapter 5. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, that is adversity. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. 
Now, not long after Jesus spoke these words, remember, this is the night that he's arrested. This is on the way to Gethsemane, and he's telling the disciples that that they are going to come under opposition and adversity and overt persecution from the world, and it's just going to be a couple of hours before he is arrested. And then what do they do? They just run and hide. They are scared to death with the threat of persecution, and they run and hide. And, of course, Peter is the one who completely denies that he knows anything about Jesus or ever hung around with Jesus or the disciples, and they just become the the uh, poster children for cowardice and spiritual cowardice. And yet three days later, when Jesus is raised from the dead, they become the poster children for courage. And that's a great evidence that something more than just a psychological shot in the arm happened on Resurrection Sunday, that what they saw was something more than just an apparition. It was more than the result of spiritual pep talk, but that they saw something that was so profound, so real, so life-changing because of what it truly was, that is, someone who had died and was brought forth from the grave and was was uh, uh, now before them in his resurrection body, that all of them were radically changed in terms of their mental attitude and their courage. They understood now why the battle was being fought. They had a clear picture of that end game. They understood where things were headed. There was an experiential reality now to what they had been taught that just completely changed and refocused their entire mental attitude. And we see the example of that here in Acts chapter 5. We've seen it already, but we see it come to sort of a conclusion here in this second trial that concludes in chapter 5. Just as a review, in chapter 1, Jesus gives his parting words to the disciples, tells them to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, Peter gives his first message. There's a huge response. The church grows. In chapter 3, 4, and 5, there's an integrated situation that occurs not long after uh, not long after the day of Pentecost. We don't know if it was just a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later, but it wasn't very long. I don't think it was as long as a year. Uh, it's presented as, a, as a something very close in time. Peter and John go to the temple. There they run into the lame man who is outside of the gate called Beautiful. They heal him. Uh, they explain what they're doing in terms of a, a sermon. P- Peter preaches a sermon, offers the gospel, emphasizes the resurrected Christ for which they are arrested. That's chapter 4, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin for the first time. They are uh, kept overnight in jail. The Sanhedrin interrogates them, and then they are released, and they are uh, they're intimidated, and they're told not to preach anymore in the name of, of Jesus. But the response of Peter and John is that uh, it's right for us to obey God rather than you, and so we must speak the things that we have seen and heard. So they're threatened and intimidated some more. They're released. They go back to the other disciples. There is a prayer meeting of thanksgiving to God, focusing on uh, some of the things taught in the Psalms, specifically Psalm 2.1. And then... uh, Luke starts a progress report at the uh, end of that chapter, 32 through 37, really begins that as the church, and it just sort of summarizes how the church is maturing and growing and how they're taking care of one another. We have one negative example with Ananias and Sapphira, and it is in that context that we learn that the apostles in verse 12 of chapter 5 are performing many other signs and wonders. So there's more miracles in addition to the healing of the lame man. And these, these, uh, these miracles provide substantiation uh, to, their, uh, to their message. But there's a fear among the people after what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, yet, nevertheless, there is a growth that takes place Uh, among the believers, and it's in that context that they're arrested again in verse 17. The high priest uh, charges them, and he is uh, with the Sadducees, and so the Sanhedrin uh, sends out uh, those to arrest him, uh, I mean arrest them, the apostles, 
and they are arrested. And this brings us up to uh, 526. And so this is just a rough outline of the rest of the chapter. The arrest, which and some of this we've already discussed, the arrest is described in verse 26 where they are brought uh, without violence, the text says, for they feared the people. And that tells us again that there's still a huge number of people, as I pointed out last week when I addressed the question of who killed Jesus, that it's not all the Jews. It was the, the Jewish leadership, not even all the Jewish leadership. We still have undercover believers like uh, uh, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, maybe a few others among the Pharisees that uh, had trusted in Jesus as, as the Messiah. But there is a fear among the people that the people would rise up against the Sanhedrin. So they are still acting as a minority, but as a minority that is uh, in a position uh, of power. So the arrest takes place in verse 26, and then the trial is described in verses 27 down through 40. There's the charge that is brought against them by the Sanhedrin that is uh, rehearsed in verses uh, 27 uh, to 28, that they are reminded, Peter, that is Peter and the other apostles are reminded that we told you the last time that you're not teaching his name. What are you doing? You can tell they're really getting upset and irritated now. Uh, so there's an increased opposition that's indicated here. And as we see, the last time they just threatened and intimidated them. This time they're going to threaten and intimidate them, and they're going to flog them. And then the next time that this happens, which is with Stephen in uh, cha- chapter 8, they're going to uh, they're going to stone Steve. They're going to get just absolutely lose control, violate their own law, and they're going to haul Stephen out and 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 stone him to death. So the opposition into to the uh, proclamation of the gospel that Jesus is raised from the dead increases in intensity. So they're they're reminded of the charge that they were not to teach in this man's name. And then Peter responds by saying, we are to obey God. This is in verses 29 to 32. We're to obey God rather than men. And notice that in this section, there is a reminder of grace. The, Peter gives a counter charge. Notice the courage that he has uh, and that he's demonstrated both in the previous trial and in this trial, which they did not have prior to the resurrection. What changed? It's the resurrection. And this has given them the courage. The truth has given them courage. And so he countercharges, and he says, it's the God of our fathers who raised Jesus from the dead, and you murdered him by hanging on a tree. Now, the you is a you related to the Sanhedrin because of the decision that they made to hand Jesus over to Pontius Pilate for the purpose of execution. But Peter points out, God exalted him to the right hand to be prince and savior and to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He's not just blaming the Sanhedrin. He's not out to blame them for the purpose of blaming them. He wants them to recognize what they did so that they can receive grace. They can respond to the offer of grace. And what is being offered here is forgiveness. This is not an offer of, and there's no hint of an ongoing, everlasting blame uh, to the Jewish people, as I pointed out last time when I addressed the question of who killed Jesus and the the horrible situation that's uh, developed in history because uh, in the early Middle Ages and in the early church, they began to blame the Jews, all Jews, all generations at all times for the uh, death of Jesus. So there's the countercharge that includes an offer of grace, but then there's a reaction in verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious. This is the New King James translation. They were furious and plotted to kill them. So we had the same kind of language uh, earlier as they reacted to Jesus' teaching that we saw the scribes and the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests began to plot among themselves as to how they could kill Jesus. Now it's, we're getting a repetition uh, of that pattern. The word that's translated furious is the Greek word diaprio, which has as a literal meaning to saw something, to saw something uh, in two. It's used in First Chronicles 20, verse 3, to describe the sawing in half 
of a prophet in the New Testament. It's used with a metaphorical sense of it's applied as, as becoming angry, being cut uh, to the quick and the reaction to that. Uh, so some, um, uh, some translations translate it that way. They were cut to the quick. The idea is they become enraged. They, they respond uh, in a purely emotional way and begin to plot to kill Jesus. So now they, they have been convicted emotionally. They know they're wrong, and yet they refuse in arrogance to admit that they are wrong. So there's their reaction to, um, to Peter's charge, and this is where I want to pick up uh, as we move forward, finish up this chapter today. We see something happen in verse 33 that is a really interesting shift that takes place, and it foreshadows a division among the Sanhedrin that will be exploited more and more by the Apostle Paul as we go through uh, the rest of Acts. In verse 33 we read that when they heard this, uh, they were furious and, and plotted to kill them. Then on the one in the council stood up. Now, in the council you had... Uh, basically two groups. It was dominated by the, by the Sadducees, but there were also members of the Pharisee party that were there. And among the Sadducees and the Pharisees, there, were, there was a great disagreement theologically. They, they, the Sadducees were aristocrats, and they had a, a, a more liberal view of theology. They did not believe in resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They only believed that the uh, first five books of the Old Testament were authoritative, but they they undercut the authority of Scripture. They're not very different from liberals today who question uh, the accuracy of the uh, of the text, who are skeptical that the Bible is what it claims to be, which is the Word of God. And it's easily valid, validated or verifi- verified. But the reason people reject the validation or verification is because they've already made a decision in their own soul that they don't want to have anything to do with God. And this is what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, that with the evidence that God has presented in the heavenlies, there are those who are suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. And, and you're never going, you and I could never give enough evidence. In fact, I've often wanted to ask uh, someone who was uh, not, a, not a Christian, someone who rejected the faith, saying, what would constitute enough evidence for you that the, that the Bible was true? Uh, what would constitute enough uh, evidence that God exists? Because they have more than enough evidence. They've just rejected it. They don't want to believe the facts. And we all know people like that, and we're that way sometimes, that we're so committed to a particular uh, way of doing something or a particular belief that we just don't, don't confuse me with facts. I want to do it the way I want to do it. And, and yet when that goes over into the spiritual realm, it is really the, um, the formula for spiritual disaster. And uh, this is exactly the kind of situation that you have among many religious types. And by religion, I mean those who believe that somehow man contributes to something. They view religion as something that is purely just a human activity. They, 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 reject, uh, they, they reject ahead of time before there's ever any evidence or any discussion of anything, the fact that God, that God could exist and that he could communicate to people. I mean, that's how they approach the evidence. They believe that God, God could not do this. That doesn't fit their view of God. They're so committed to their view of God that, that, that when, when you look at the Scripture and God says, this is how I am, they say, no, 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 that can't be God. Uh, I reject that view of God. So, so they, they reject God ahead of time on the basis of their own, uh, own negative volition. And so the Pharisees were that way, and they had their theology. But the Pharisees weren't a whole lot better. I've talked more about the Sadducees, so tonight I want to talk a little bit about the Pharisees. And uh, there's a lot of controversy, and it's difficult to really nail down anything uh, concrete about the Pharisees outside of the New Testament and a few things that Josephus says because there's no extra-biblical evidence or evidence outside of Josephus about the the Pharisees. We don't have any surviving uh, writings by any Pharisee. There are no archaeological finds that have been discovered that talk about the Pharisees. So our reconstruction of who they are and what they believed depends uh, completely upon 
the, the New Testament, uh, Josephus, and one or two other, other, uh, other facets. When we look at the New Testament, we see the Pharisees as a somewhat powerful movement. But the reality is, is they're not as, when you look at the culture that existed in, uh, in Judea and Galilee in the first century, they weren't that powerful. You had approximately, uh, three million or so Jews living in Judea and Galilee, uh, during this particular time in, in history. But you also have large cities that existed in that area that were Roman, Greco-Roman cities. You have, some of you have been, uh, been with me on trips to Israel where we've gone to, uh, some of these places and we've seen them and, and, uh, uh, we have, uh, walked through, uh, some of these particular areas and see the influence of the Greco-Roman culture. The, for example, in the cities of the Decapolis, uh, you see all of the evidence of, of, uh, of Greece and Rome, you have a uh, uh, you, you have a, a, a theater. Uh, you have the area where the games are, are take place, the Colosseum. Uh, you have uh, many other evidences, and this was very attractive to many secular Jews at the time. And there was a large, large segment of the Jewish population in this area in the first century that was was secular, much as you have within the Jewish community today. You have some that were uh, that were aligned with the Pharisees. You had some others that were more liberal, liberally aligned in terms of religion, like the Sadducees. But many were just committed to tradition, to history, and uh, they were very influenced by the uh, by the culture, the Greco-Roman uh, Greco-Roman culture. As a matter of fact, as I've been reading through this this recent book by uh, Simon Sebag Montefiore about um, about the, the Jerusalem, called Jerusalem a biography, he points out how perverse and decadent the culture was in Jerusalem and in Judea in the first century. That there was a, a huge, large amount of, uh, of in, marital infidelity and adultery that had just reached a proportion where it was nor, sort of normative and accepted. Also, there was a large degree of homosexuality and other areas of sexual perversion. And if we think about it, that fits with what is predicted by Moses back in Leviticus 26 in Deuteronomy uh, 27, 28, and talking about the results that would come in a culture that had rejected God. And so this was, uh, this was part of what how, the fabric of a Judean culture in the first century and led up to their uh, judgment by God. It wasn't simply and solely a judgment based on the fact that they had re- rejected Jesus as Messiah. They had basically rejected God. And if you think about the history of the Pharisees, the Pharisaical party began, uh, most scholars believe that it began sometime during the Hasmonean period, uh, and they had an emphasis on trying to bring back uh, the Jewish culture to a, a serious obedience to the law of Moses. That initially they had a, a, a good structure and, and they were uh, very positive in terms of their orientation towards the, uh, t- towards the law. Um, the term Pharisee is believed to have come from an Aramaic uh, verb, peras, which means to divide or to separate. And the Pharisees saw themselves as the separated or the holy ones. In fact, they were the ancient Hasidim. And don't confuse them too much with the modern Hasidim, but that was, that term means the pious ones. And it refers to those who were righteous, who were serious about obeying the word. Now, what they became by the first century was not what they were when they initially began uh, during the time of the Hasmoneans as they witnessed the, the leaders, the priesthood uh, of, the, uh, of, of Judea during the time of the Hasmoneans. They saw how corrupt it was and how it was being influenced by the culture of the Seleucids. 
and uh, the the Greek culture. Remember, after Alexander the Great died, uh, the Greek Empire was divided up among his his generals, and two generals specifically relate to the Middle East. Ptolemy uh, had the sphere of a, of uh, responsibility in Egypt and. Uh, the area of uh, of Israel was under that authority for many years initially until about 270 or 280 B.C., and then it switched hands and it came under the authority of the Seleucids, and there was constant battles going on between the Seleucid uh, emperors and the, uh, and the Ptolemies. And so when the Seleucids took over and then uh, began to enforce very anti-Jewish uh, legislation, specifically under Antiochus Epiphanes, then later there was a revolt led by um, by the the Maccabean family as they reacted and revolted against the uh, the authority the anti Jewish authority of the Seleucids, and but it wasn't long before that their authority began to become corrupted as they entered into various uh, various treaties and relationships with the Seleucids, and so the surrounding culture that Greco that, that Greek culture. And all of their views on on women, their views on on homosexuality and everything else, infiltrates, and so the, the the Jewish culture begins to be Hellenized. And we'll talk about this when we get into the next chapter, uh, because in the next chapter you have the uh, Hellenistic widows that seem to be com- that are complaining because they're overlooked in the distribution of uh, of care. Uh, in the early church, and that leads the apostles to appoint a group of men who will help oversee that uh, so that they can spend their time in prayer and the teaching of the word. But So there's this distinction between the Palestinian Jews and the Hellenized Jews. Well, you had Hellenized Jews who were living in, in, in Judea, and but they lived just like they, they were Greek, uh, and, and they had completely absorbed that that culture. Not unlike today, you have many, many modern Christians, yet they've so absorbed the culture of the world around them. They're postmodern, they're socialist, they're, they, they would rather go to church and feel good than go to church and study and learn the Bible. It's interesting, recently I've had in some contexts um, opportunities to, where I've run into a number of, of young people in their 20s and early 30s who are, uh, I've been surprised, involved in a couple of larger churches in, in Houston and I asked them questions. They find out. I tell them I'm a pastor. I say, well, where do you go to church? And they'll tell me. And I'll say, uh, and I'm not beating on that church because it's not unique to that church. But I'll say, um, and the church would probably surprise you. And um, it's not the one you think it is. And I'll say, well, really, well, what, what attracts you? to that church and to that ministry. And they'll tell, begin to tell me things. Well, we have a good ministry downtown to the, to the poor or the music is great. And I have yet to have anybody say, I, I learned the Bible. I haven't heard anybody say the biblical teaching is good. I have, I've yet to, nobody's even come close to that. Nobody's even said it in, in a bad, you know, in a bad, uh, inarticulate manner. Uh, it's always something social or something in terms of uh, either in terms of their interaction with their peers or in terms of ministry in some way to some group. But ultimately, it never comes down to I really learned the Bible and I'm learning to grow spiritually and I'm excited about that. That's a, you never have, I don't, it's not the last thing I've heard. I've never heard it. And yet that's what we see in terms of the movement of evangelicalism today. And it is, and the more you hear about this, and I watched a guy who's got it, runs a commercial all the time on TV, not Second Baptist, uh, someone else. And I see this all the time on TV, and I was watching him this morning, just happened to hit him as I was channel surfing. And I listened to him for 10 minutes. I never heard a single reference to anything related to the Bible, not one thing. That's where we are. So we have people who have just basically sold out to the culture, but they have a veneer that they've created about going to church and being a Christian that is enough to satisfy them and deceive, they deceive themselves into thinking that, that they're okay, they're, they're Christian, they're going to XYZ church, and uh, it's nothing more than uh, secular psychology wrapped up in uh, Christian garb and being... Uh, being promoted from the pulpit. It's not biblical Christianity.
And But this is nothing new. This has happened down through the centuries. It's part of the battle. It's part of the battle that occurs in people's souls. They have to decide what are they committed to. Do they really want to know the truth, and are they willing to discover the truth and to find the truth, or they just want to find something that seems to make things work for them right now, that somehow I can uh, I can balance whatever conflicts there are in my soul, I can find a, a measure of comfort, and I can feel good about life and myself uh, without having to really do serious business with God, without having to really deal with what the Scripture teaches and tells me about who I am as someone created in the image and likeness, uh, image and likeness of God. And so this was something the Pharisees reacted to initially, and they tried to take a stand and call the people back to a to a Torah standard. Problem is that as time went by they began to codify that Torah standard in an additional 10,000-plus commandments, and so they got locked down into a form of overt legalism that was had a righteousness that was as a result of obedience to their traditions. And so these are the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were the more conservative uh Theologically, they did believe in an afterlife. They believed in miracles. They believed in the Messiah. They believed they were calling the nation to a measure of righteousness in preparation for the Messianic kingdom. And I think this is why we we don't really see any examples in Scripture of Sadducees who are attracted to Jesus, but we do see examples in Scripture of Pharisees that become attracted to Jesus. Nicodemus. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, and a young man we haven't seen yet, but we are introduced to his mentor here in verse 34, and that is Gamaliel. Gamaliel was considered to be uh, one of the foremost rabbis in, the, uh, in this period of history. Prior to this, the two great rabbis were Hillel and Shammai. Hillel and Shammai, and the two great schools of thought among the rabbis, they either followed one or they, they followed the other. But the great, uh, the, the great successor to Hillel, who was the more conservative, is Gamaliel, and this is the one who is mentioned here in verse 34. One in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people. And uh, he is referred to as uh, Rabbi Gamaliel I, and he is sometimes referred to as Rabban Gamaliel the Elder. He is the president of the Council of the Sanhedrin following his own father, uh, Rabbi Simeon, who was the son of Hillel. So he's the grandson of Hillel, who is considered one of the foremost uh, rabbis. He was the Apostle Paul's teacher and mentor. And he is considered to be the 35th generation or receiver of the traditions, that is the oral traditions handed down by uh, from Moses. In their theology, there were two lines of, of revelation handed down from Moses. There's the written and the oral. Not unlike what we see developed later on in Christianity in the Roman Catholic Church where you have the oral and the written tradition. In the oral law, it really becomes sort of the... Uh, a view of the elite, the spiritual elite in the aristocracy of the Roman church, and the oral law always seems to be that which defines and interprets the written so that you lose a sense of respect for the written text, and it's more about what do the traditions teach about what it says instead of going and looking uh, directly at, at uh, uh, what the text says. Uh, Gamaliel lived until... Uh, 52, he dies 18 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. His son Simeon succeeded him uh, in his position of authority, and Simeon was uh, killed in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Uh, in later rabbinic tradition, Gamaliel is elevated to be the uh, uh, head of the school of rabbinical theology at, that was handed down from Hillel, and he is highly esteemed in the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah isn't written until 
the, the, the late second century. The Mishnah is handed down through oral tradition, and it probably didn't change any, but it, 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 it covers the, what the rabbis taught from about the second century BC up through the second century AD, and it's finally written down in its final form in about by the end of the second century. Then after that, you have a group of uh, Jewish scholars who begin to write comments, commentaries on the Mishnah, and that became known as the Gemara. And uh, the combination of the Gemara and the Mishnah is known as the Talmud. The Talmud gets codified from about 600 to 900 uh, AD. So if you look at a page of the Talmud, what you'll see is a center square. That's the Mishnah. Then there's about a, a half inch to three quarter inch white margin around that, and then the uh, around that you see uh, comments uh, written, a commentary. That's the Gemara, and together that all makes up the uh, uh, the Talmud. So he is held in high esteem historically. And he stands up and he speaks with respect here in the uh, in the Sanhedrin. And when he stands, we see a picture of the fact that he is uh, highly respected, and so people listen listen to him. And he addresses them in verse thirty five and says, "Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men." He offers wise counsel. Now the question comes up: How would Luke know about this? And I think that the way Luke knew about what Gamaliel said was because Paul was there, Saul of Tarsus, as Gamaliel's right-hand man, his foremost student. Uh, Saul of Tarsus would have been present much as he was present. We'll see him present in a couple of chapters at the stoning of, of Stephen. We see that he was he would have been there, and so it's very likely that uh, Luke learned of this because it's a closed session. They sent everybody out. And it's a closed session, and so they learn, he, he would learn from Paul what Gamaliel said. And then Luke inserts this, much as he did a statement by Caiaphas in John chapter, um, <clears throat> John chapter, uh, 12, as a piece of irony. Isn't it ironic that here this Jewish leader stands up and says this, uh, and doesn't recognize the truth of what he's saying in John, John 12, it was Caiaphas saying uh, it's good for one person to die on, on behalf of the nation. And he's not talking about Jesus' substitutionary atonement, but that if Jesus dies, it'll settle things down and we'll be okay with the Romans. Uh, but what he doesn't realize is the, the truth there that Jesus was dying for the people. Neither does Gamaliel recognize what he is saying here, that if this really is something from God, then we can't stop it. And it wasn't stopped. Christianity was not ever controlled. You couldn't control it because it was truly a work of God. So he gives this warning. He says, uh, watch yourselves uh, in terms of what you do to these men. And then he reminds them that there have been other false messiahs that have come up. And the first one he mentions is a man named Thutis. Uh, for some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. Uh, a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. Now, if you listen to some people or read some commentaries or listen to somebody on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel, they'll say, see, this is one of those examples where there's an error in the Bible. But remember, th what they do is they always come to the, to the glass and it's half empty. It's always negative. They, uh, they presuppose that the Bible is going to be wrong. So they jump to a negative conclusion before they ever look at the evidence to see if possibly there's another explanation. And, of course, there is another and better explanation. Uh, the pro first, we have to identify the problem. According to Josephus, who was a uh, Jewish historian, he was a general in the Jewish army that was captured by the Romans, and he pleaded with them, and they let him live, and so he be basically became... Um, uh, supported by the house of, of, um, uh, of Vespasian, and so they allowed him to live, and he wrote uh, uh, the history of the Jews, wrote several different uh, works on the history of the Jews that give us a firsthand account of what went on in the first century, especially in that decade of the 60 to 70 during the wars of the Jews. 
uh, but he wrote in his Antiquities of the Jews, which is a history of the Jews that that uh, uh, follows along with uh, history from the Old Testament, uh, that there that there was a Thutis who rose up in the 40s, in the fifth or sixth year of Claudius. And uh, he says, and here we have a quote from Josephus, it came to pass while Phaedus was procurator of Judea that a certain magician whose name was Thutis persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with them and follow him to the river Jordan. For he told them he was a prophet and that he would by his own command divide the river and afford them an easy passage over it. And many were deluded by his words. However, Phaedus did not permit them to make any advantage of his wild attempt but sent a troop of horsemen out against them. So the Romans attack, uh, who falling upon them unexpectedly slew many of them, took many of them alive. They also took Thutis alive, cut off his head, carried it to Jerusalem. That was what befell the Jews in the time of Cuspius Fadus' government. Now this sounds similar to Gamaliel's description of the Thutis uh, who rose up and claimed to be somebody, and for about 400 men rallied to him. But Gamaliel locates this in verse 37 as being before Judas of Galilee rising up in the days of the census. That puts it back to about 4 A.D. So if Thutis, uh, that, if that's referring to Thutis before uh, Judas of Galilee, then that's... 40 years earlier than the Thutis that Josephus mentions. And so what you see with liberal scholars is they say Josephus was right, Luke was wrong. But maybe neither one of them are wrong. Let's assume that these writers of the ancient world know something about the truth and historical sources. See, that's the assumption that underlies a lot of liberal theology today is that you have liberal scholars who think that we, living 1,900 or 2,000 years later, know a lot more about what actually happened than those people did. And that is just the height of arrogance. And yet you may be witnessing to somebody and they will read a book like maybe this a uh, book about Jerusalem I just read where things like this are brought up. Said, See, there, there's all kinds of contradictions here. But the reality is that it's very likely because there were a large number of these pseudo-messiahs and these revolutionaries that came along in the early part of the first century that this Thutis that uh, Gamaliel describes and that Luke quotes him about is much earlier than the Thutis and is a different Thutis than the ones who shows up in 40. There's not just one person by this uh, particular name. So it's it's not uh, necessary to think that either Luke or Josephus had some kind of an error, error, but simply that this is a different Thutis. At the time of um, uh, when Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., there was a certain amount of uh, 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 civil disruption over the next ten years, and uh, this in this it was in this context that you had a number of these kinds of false messiahs uh, come up and claim to to be something. This uh, Judas was one of them, mentioned in verse thirty-seven. After this man, that is after Thutis, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. So what Gamaliel is saying is, we've had these kinds of people come along before, and it doesn't amount to anything. There's a few people that uh, rally to their cause, and they, they go off uh, following them, and the next thing you know, uh, the, the movement falls apart. So let's not get too caught up in uh, this movement. And he concludes saying, uh, verse 38, now I say to you, keep away from these men, let them alone, for this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. So this is a great statement. He doesn't understand all the implications of what he is saying, but Luke does, and this is why Luke uh, quotes him in order to uh, to use that uh, for on, on his behalf. Gamaliel's point is simply that uh, you're <clears throat> you're not able to stop uh, stop something that God is behind. 
But, and he, but you have to interpret him within Pharisaic theology, which is somewhat fatalistic. And this, so this isn't, uh, Luke isn't saying, well, he's right. He's just saying he's making this general point that, that God must, uh, you can't stop a program that God has put into place. Uh, but Gamaliel doesn't test the uh, evidence of the resurrection. He doesn't uh, consider the truthfulness of the claims of uh, Peter and the apostles that Christ was raised from the dead. Uh, he doesn't look at uh, the validity of the signs and wonders performed by the, uh, by the apostles. He just wants to calm things down a little bit and not cause uh, more of a disruption. After uh, he says what he says, the Sanhedrin apparently responds and uh, calms down a little bit. Uh, verse 40 says that they agreed with him. And when they called for the apostles and beaten them, and at this point they are flogged, and a description from the Mishnah tells us, there's a whole section of the Mishnah describing uh, the protocol for flogging. Uh, we understand it a little bit. It says, how do they discourage him? They bind his two hands to a pillar on either side, and the minister of the synagogue lays hold on his garments so that he bears his chest. A stone is set down behind him on which the minister of the synagogue stands with a strap of calf hide in his hand, doubled and redoubled, and two other straps that rise and fall are fastened thereto. He must give him one-third of the stripes in front and two-thirds behind, and he may not strike him when he is standing or when he is sitting, but only when he is bending low, for it is written... Uh, Deuteron- he quotes Deuteronomy 25.2, the judge shall cause him to lie down. And he that smites, smites with his one hand with all his might. And if he dies under his hand, the scourger is not culpable. They would, the, the Mosaic law limited them to 40 lashes, so they never gave more than 39 just in case they miscounted. As the accuser, in the last paragraph, as the accuser suffers his beating, another person stands by and reads from Deuteronomy 28, 58 to 63, if you do not uh, carefully follow all the words of this law, uh, and he reads that repeatedly throughout, uh, throughout the process. And so they go through this uh, very uh, ritual form of uh, flogging and beat the apostles, uh, which is the specifically an overt attack on Christians, over persecution to discourage them from pursuing victory in their Christian life and fulfilling everything that Christ had told them to do. And so we see their reaction to this in verse 41 and 42 in the conclusion. So they departed, Luke says, from the presence of the council rejoicing. So they're, they're, this, instead of discouraging them, this just motivates them. This is how suffering or adversity is to impact the Christian. You've got to learn to love the battle. When you engage in the battle, it's not to discourage you and come back beaten and defeated. How can we win? When we engage in the battle, it's supposed to say, wow, this is great because this gives me an opportunity to glorify God in the battle. And so they, they are motivated it stimulates them. It pushes them forward, and that's how we should respond. Rather than grumbling or complaining, and Paul says in Philippians 2, we're not to grumble or complain. We're not to look at the glass and say, oh, I'm just so glad when Jesus comes back and I can get out of here. Instead, we're to respond by, this is great. We're in the battle. This is an opportunity to suffer for the cause of the gospel, whether it's overt or covert in terms of the battle with the world system, and it just gives me a further opportunity to glorify God in the battle, whatever the opposition is, and not let it discourage me or drag me down. So they depart from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. In other words, they get the opportunity to glorify God by their response to adversity. And this had a, another consequence because the people were so changed by their response to adversity, this became evident in terms of their, their witness. And verse 42 states, daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. 
And so it just stimulates, it just pushes them. The more you oppose them, the more they taught, the more they went out and proclaimed the truth of Jesus as the Messiah. And what happens is what we see in verse 1 of the next chapter. Now, in those days, when or as the disciples were multiplying, so the church continues to increase in its growth. And they began to face another problem, and that is organizational and administrative problems uh, within the congregation. So we'll come back and look at that in chapter 6, uh, starting next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, study these things tonight, to be challenged, to see how the apostles responded to the opposition. And Father, we pray that under God the Holy Spirit, we might have the strength and the courage and the encouragement to, to look at life from this viewpoint, that when we face opposition, when we face that which de- tends to discourage us, that we put it in the right context of the battle, the spiritual warfare in which we're all engaged, and that <clears throat> we can learn to love that battle because we know what the end game is, and the end game is to glorify you, and the end game is to be prepared for our future role, our future destiny to rule and reign with our Lord and Savior in his kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.